Hello everyone, my name is Vala Afshar and welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Please send us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests will do our best to answer your questions through the show and then certainly after the show. It is my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, CEO and co-founder of Constellation Research, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, ZDNet, and other publications, and most importantly, one of the best followers on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray. Hey, hello, Vala from Austin, Texas. So I'm really excited to introduce my co-host, Vala Afshar. And more importantly, he is one of the top influencers for CIOs, CMOs around the world, contributor to HuffPost, author, and more importantly, um, a really great friend. So hey, who do we have here? We just You just left Austin. I'm still in Austin. What are we featuring this week? Yeah, so today we're featuring the technology innovation and the boom an incredible work that's happening in the Austin area. We're gonna start the show with our first guest, Jim Messer, founder and CEO of Go Transverse. Jim has spent the past 25 years focused on telecommunications in the IT industry. He served as the vice president of sales at LHS Group, one of the largest implementation and support networks in the global customers care and billing marketplace with more than 300 customer sites worldwide and 18 global and regional partners. Jim uh, later served as Vice President of Sales for SEMA Group, uh, which became the world's leader in communication software and solutions after the acquisition of LHS for $4.75 billion. He participates uh, as a partner in the Spectrum 5 LLC, the largest holder of DBS Spectrum, uh, with full U.S. coverage. You can follow his company on Twitter at GoTransverse, G-O-T-R-A-N-S-V-E-R-S-E. Welcome, Jim, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, Vala. Hey, welcome, Jim. Thanks for being here. You know, we are entering a world of what we call offering management. And that means we're not just selling products anymore. Uh, we're also selling services, insights, experience, and even outcomes. Uh, what are your clients asking for? Because you've built a business around this. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. They want to drive revenue and reduce costs. You know, of course, speed to market and getting those new revenue streams out there. Um, these are what are really driving it. And then at the end of the day, it's about the data. They want to gain visibility into that quote to cash life cycle. So they want the ability to, to look at that data in near real time or real time. And, uh, and they, want to, they want to really have further insight into the utilization of their services. And that can really only be provided by, um, by that usage and, and dramatically enhanced when the usage can carry metadata that, that we support. So the product alone is not enough, right? They're not just selling products, right? I mean, they, they've got to figure out how to bill for something else, right? No, that's correct. Um, basically, if you can measure it, we can monetize it. So it's, it, it really is up to those companies to look at how they want to build these new revenue streams. And we have clients that are traditional hardware companies that are looking to launch new lines of, of revenue. And that's the basis of a subscription plus a usage-based service. Usually, um, the common denominator is, you know, there's some sort of usage coming off of that product or service. It, was that the impetus? And you, you know, tell us about you know why you found it, Go Transverse, and what what you saw missing in the market, and perhaps what you saw that you could do better to serve sure. customers. 
Sure. For the last, um, uh, before founding Go Transfers, I, um, I, I helped establish and, and operate three of what became very large billing companies. And each time we established one of those market leaders, it was to address a void in the marketplace, whether it be GSM billing on a global basis, whether it be broadband or satellite billing, whether it be IP billing, et cetera. But in the late 80s, it became very, very clear that those big enterprise software companies we built had a real problem when it came to the advent of cloud-based services. People were going to launch, want to launch products fast. And the companies we built, the revenue model was really about that classic enterprise software change management model. Mm -hmm. um, what you see, of course, traditional with Oracle, SAP, all the big software companies and the reason they were so valuable. So, but in cloud services, that just simply doesn't work. So we had to build a platform that had the same robust functionality that, uh, that we used to sell for $100 million, maybe a billion dollar project, um, but it had to service all of our customers on the same code base, and it couldn't, didn't, it, you could not rely on it to be customized, it had to be configured. So we knew it had to be a native cloud platform with modern software architectures that critically has to uh, uh, be able to leverage the elasticity, uh, elasticity that's, that's inherent in a native cloud solution provided by the cloud. So that was really why we did that because no other billing company in the marketplace uh, could do that. And it had to be technology or platform agnostic. Makes sense, makes total sense. This makes a lot of sense. Now, what you're talking about sounds like it's much more than a billing platform. You are actually in the monetization business here. And so, I mean, why do customers choose your solutions? And, and when do they realize they need you? You know, that's an excellent question. So um, traditionally, uh, billing has been a, a very, very large multi-billion dollar industry in three primarily mar primary markets that are very sophisticated, telecom, utilities, and financial services. There's some outliers, medical, legal, et cetera, but that really isn't the difficulty that you see in a telecom environment, for instance, where you have billions of real-time events that are either processed in real-time, near real-time, and batch. Um, and then you have global roaming, you have a heavy regulatory burden. Um, you know, every country is different in their, in their regulations. So um, you, don't, you don't get that experience except for being in the trenches and having that domain expertise, that domain expertise really comes from being in those very expensive problems and solving them for your customers. So now when we flash forward into this new market that we're in, um, where, where we have software companies and we have logistics companies and, and a lot of, lot of industries are, and of course the advent of IoT, um, where we have IP enabled devices on everything, but these people, it, it's come so fast that they never had the time to really have the pain and suffering and understand the complexities of enterprise billing. So that's really, um, um, was a big impetus on why we came into the space and try to give that deep domain expertise and they choose us for that. I mean, it's an expensive education that we had and you know, just one of the companies that we built in the past is larger than all of our cloud-based billing companies in the industry today. So I mean, we're in it, our infancy right now. This is gonna be magnificently large and, um, and, and it had to be built and it doesn't happen overnight. So that's why we got in there. Our customers then choose us because we, we give them a concierge service. You know, So we hold their hands through the implementation we work with sophisticated partners um, that are, depending on what, what customer it is, some we handle all by ourselves. Um, and then, of course, our technology stack was built off of that domain expertise. So the, the combination between the technology and the domain expertise is why customers choose us. Sure. So, Jim, this is going to sound like name dropping, and it is. Uh, Ray and I uh, spend the last couple of days with Don Tapscott, one of the world's top thinkers uh, focusing on blockchain revolution. 
And then yesterday with Dr. Clay Christensen, Harvard Business Professor, author of Innovator's Dilemma. And the conversation with both of these extraordinary leaders uh, centered around disruption and, uh, you know, um, digital immigrant uh, in organizations, companies that weren't born in the cloud, that weren't born mobile first or social, and what they need to do to not only grow but stay relevant. And um, so your, your background, you came from Telco. What are some of the lessons you learned from Telco that may not be applicable today for companies that are trying to go through that digital transformation journey? Yeah, so the telecom billing background, um, as I alluded to, really enabled us to experience highly varied business models and processes. You know, no two major telecom companies do business the same, and they all viewed their monetization strategies as something being proprietary and special to them. Although I'd love to argue and say that at the end of the day, they were all trying to do the same thing and wasting a tremendous amount of money trying to be different. But when we go into a native web platform, you know, it has more of the power and the flexibility to deliver the same capabilities at a fraction of the cost on a global basis, including as a dedicated or localized instance to support the, the stringent regulatory or, or other landscapes that, that you encounter. So, you know, today the environment, although we have a naive customer base, that in, for the most part, our telecom clients are still quite sophisticated now as we add utility customers that are moving into the space. Um, but you know those, those are struggles. So, so telecom, once again, it really just comes down to we've been there. We face so many, you know, the situational awareness that you have when your customers can potentially lose billions of dollars makes you really smart, and they throw a lot of resources at it. We happen to be um, grew up in an environment where where trillions of dollars were being invested into telecom companies with new spectrum allocations, etc. So we got to see, you know, that situational awareness grows on a global basis. We were able to bring that into uniquely, and I would I would love for someone to call uh, call me out on it. Um, I don't think there's another billing company in the cloud space that really had the benefit of that expensive education. Billing, I would challenge you to tell me another industry that. That, uh, that you can't go to Silicon Valley and you can't just hire the smartest guys and put them in a room and throw a lot of money at them and tell them to develop a good billing system because they don't have the benefit of that expensive education in the past. There's a lot of gotchas and you had to have been there and seen your customers or you suffer as a result of those mistakes in that learning process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking, of, speaking about Silicon Valley, we are in... And how do you affect on hills? Are we what? Austin is like massive tech scene popping up here, right? And it's been for some time and we see a lot of enterprise vendors here. Um, tell us about the scene in Austin. So yeah, yeah I, you guys remind me of that every time I see my tax bill on my house. So <laughs> the rates on us and our traffic's getting really bad, but we'll, we'll blame that on ourselves for, for having a, a, a very unique scene. I think if you look at the history of Austin and everyone tells me how fast it's growing, it really isn't growing any faster than it has since 1880. We've doubled in size every 20 years. It's just that the numbers are getting bigger and our planning hasn't prepared for it. Of course, you know, the economics between California and here are, are, are much different. And that makes it attractive for us to draw a lot of people. And Texas is a very, very pro-business environment. And, and Austin is a little oasis in Texas that's, that's very unique unto itself. We take ourselves very serious in business, but yet, as you probably see, we have more than 200 local live music bands playing every night, more, more than 200 clubs and more than 200 acts each night. And, and that's on a Sunday or a Monday. So you get in on a weekend and, you know, it's, it's a different flavor here. You know, obviously you know about our festivals. We had MotoGP, the Grand Prix of the Americas, biggest motorcycle race in the world last weekend in town, and almost nobody knew about it. You know, so the town has grown up. Um, I've, I've been in and out of Austin since the 80s, and I would say it's as good as it's ever been. 
You know, the music seems as good as it is. A lot of the old locals will complain about it, but there's pros and cons. Other than traffic and, and real estate prices, you know, it, it's a very, very special place. But I do want to remind you Californians, when you want to move to Austin, we have terrible <laughs> allergies here, and you guys really need to think about your health before you come here. So you're trying to keep people out of here. We're crowding up the Austin Food and Wine Festival. <laughs> that's a good point. I think that's coming up this weekend. And I hope you have your tickets. That is this weekend. That's you're still in town, actually. Um, I was trying to get a ticket. I apparently had to get a Craigslist, and there's some shady dealings where I got to bring a bring an envelope of cash in order to uh, get my ticket. Um, but but what's recruiting like? What's talent like? I mean, I mean, do you see the right folks? I mean, is it easy to develop? I mean, you got UT nearby, but but how does that work? Well, that, that's an excellent question, and it is um, uh, it is one of the big challenges right now. But it's a challenge anywhere where you have a fertile um, a ground of very qualified uh, talent. Um, right now, just just recently in the last six months, we've seen some very big Silicon Valley firms make it make very large investments um, uh, in Austin that have really stressed out, the, especially the developer base. So um, uh, that is a challenge. Historically, our our companies had a very very low attrition rate. I think that helps because we're headquartered at Seventh and Congress, you know, in the heart of the entertainment district and in a funky place, and and people can get out and experience the world. You really can't do that in Silicon Valley, you know. So there's a lot of soul here. But at the same time, you know, numbers speak, and, and we've been seeing some some wage inflation in the last six months of of up to forty percent. Some of the some of the offers um, now, you know, the grass isn't always greener, and those people come back. They, you know, we've found. But yeah, there's there's no hiding. That's an issue. We need to get better about developing our local talent. Um, the University of Texas and the other, you know, there's roughly there's more than a hundred thousand university students in the metropolitan area. Um, you know, and we need to also get those programs in high school. They've, they've gotten much better over the last decade, but there's other ways to feed that talent into, into town, but it, it's been a struggle. Yeah, the, average the average price of an Austin home has gone up from 332 to 400,000 in Austin proper. So we were definitely seeing that on the real estate side. Right, go ahead. That's amazing. Well, you, know, you talked about the soul of Austin and the soul of a company certainly shaped by, by, by starting at the top with the CEO. So Jim, advice to startup founders uh, who are looking to become talent magnets, what do you have to do as a CEO to cultivate the right culture and, and, and right behavior so that people want to come work for you? Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's in, every organization is going to be different for us. And I'm not just saying this because it's Austin. Um, we, have a, we have a very, very close um, uh, almost family-like atmosphere that really revolves around nightlife and having a good time. So if you, you know, we we have we have three, two to three bands play each one of our parties, for instance. And these are these are world-class bands that you could really only get in a town like this. Maybe New Orleans, maybe Nashville at a smaller Nashville. smaller level. You know, yeah, we have all the Silicon Valley perks that you see around with you know some subsidized or free lunches and kegs of beer and everything else. But at the end of the day. Um, we've got soul here that you don't find in other markets and each company has their individual um, personality as well. So our headquarters, for instance, this is one of the oldest buildings in Austin. It was built in 1859 and we, they stored Confederate gold in the basement. You know, so, so you don't get that in Silicon Valley. If you do, tell me about it because I'll be there. But <laughs> you, know, you don't get that in another building in Austin either. So there you go. Um, <laughs> The point is, is we, we all have a different recipe for it. We've had very little attrition. I think it's because 
we built a fast-growing business uh, without getting any outside funding except for the for the from the initial founders. So you know, we 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 hit our business plan fast. We stayed with the original group of people. We built them up from uh, from the ground up, made them domain experts, and then we recruited to help fill and, and scale the company. So uh, everybody's got a different formula for us. It's just being ourselves and staying focused on what we're doing. And and as they said in Spinal Tap, have a good time all the time. <laughs> I'm sensing a ton of ATX pride here. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about let's go back a little bit back to to the business models and and people making the shifts, right? A lot of the work that we work with, um, our clients are looking for transformation changes. They're definitely evolving into business models. Um, you know, we just came out of this uh, Salesforce Higher Education Summit uh, this week, and and in the education sector, I mean, there's a different business model, right? For you know, on-demand education versus tuition education. There's different business models with licensing models and in athletics, right? Especially what they're doing with their teams and licensing, branding, merchandising. That's like a whole other business model. There's things that are happening with uh, digital IP and IP rights and things that universities are building, whether it's patents and patent troves. So, and, and so we're seeing all these different business models. And when we talk about monetization and what's happening in there, all these organizations need some level of help. And in most cases, they're looking at seven, eight, 10 different types of systems to handle those business models. When you think about the challenges that your customers are, are, are addressing, are they going after one business model? Are they putting everything on your platform? Are they doing multiple things um, to address all those types of business models? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, and none of our clients really look alike. I wish they did, but we find out that everybody wants to do it in a different uh, different way. We find the most successful projects are from mature, well well funded companies who look for outside help. They'll often bring in a consultant or a systems integrator to help them define their requirements. They know they know that billing is difficult. The smart ones they know that billing is difficult. They want an impartial outside eye to help them develop that. They need someone who could cut through the politics and say, you know what, it's going to be a lot more cost effective if we change our business processes as we develop our back office and do something that really makes sense. It doesn't have to be unique to us. Other people are trying to solve these problems. And then you, you we don't see, even in the, um, even in the developed industries that, are, that um, were slow to adopt the cloud, and I'm going to go back to the ones that are also the most sophisticated in billing, telecom, utilities, financial services. They're the late adopters of these modern back offices because their investments in billions of dollars quite often. It's hard to say no to that and that old mainframe stuff and you know that that they're still relying on. But once they do, once they do decide to go forward on this stuff, um, the ones that really get it right, um, they dedicate resources to it. They have people that can make decisions. They have project proper project uh, planning, and they go to native cloud solutions. You you don't find many people that say, you know, I really got to have this on prem. You know, let's let's really. That's my requirement. You know, nothing else. Now we're seeing decisions. This this blew me away. In the last two years, we're seeing CFOs make CIO decisions, and they're very binary. These are requirements. Can you do it at what cost? What are the SLAs? Are you a viable company? All right, we could do business. You know, it's and and we're seeing some of the biggest car companies in the world. We're seeing we're we're with two of the largest communication service providers in the world with their head of billing in in a seven day period. And now they're looking at native cloud solutions. They know that they can't launch non-traditional telecom services fast with their legacy platforms. So they're they're looking for outside help. I know I was a little all over the place, Ray, on your question, but I hope I addressed it. Sure, sure. No Jim, my final question to you as, uh, again, CEO of a growing successful company, responsible for being a visionary and defining the strategy, where do you go for research? Who inspires you 
you know, who are some of your mentors? I think these are things that would help, you know, again, aspiring company founders and CEOs would love to learn from you. Yeah, you know, we're in a kind of an esoteric space. I hate to say it, it's not sexy or anything else. You know, it's, it's domain expertise and technology, and we try to put those together and help our customers get paid because, as we say, if you're not getting paid for it, it's an expensive hobby. So b billing is business critical. You know, we're fun people, but at the end of the day, we're very, very serious about our customers getting paid and making sure revenue leakage doesn't take place and they get the revenue fast, et cetera. On the research side, not many people can help me out with that except for um, uh, you know, some, some macroeconomic data, where the market's going, et cetera. And we look to the Gartners, the Foresters. Um, there's, a, there's a specific company called MGI Research that focuses in our space that really knows cloud technology and, and billing well. And, but as far as mentors, I mean, that's really what makes you, you know, the people that you follow since you're a little kid, whether they be a coach um, that, you know, that, that gave you that corporal discipline as a testosterone laden young man that, you know, that, that kept you on the straight and narrow so that you could accomplish your goals. Um, or it's, you know, successful business people, uh, it's uh, software executives, the Larry Ellison's of the world that built massively successful companies from the ground up. I don't think people understand how difficult that is. At the end of the day, I'm from a farming family in North Dakota, and if you've ever seen a farmer work, I mean, those guys, uh, I'll put them up against any software executive any day of the week. Who can do whose job? You know, so there's a lot of people that make you up as an individual. I used to work for Senator Bob Dole, and he amazed me with such integrity. And if you don't have integrity and, and come to the job each day with that as your, as your backbone, then you've got nothing. So, um, so I, it's not a simple answer, but, you know, from farmers to the Larry Ellison's and the Bob Dole's of the world, you know, those are the people that kind of make you up. And, you know, my mom raised four boys, so I got to look to a woman like that as well. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only Jim Messer, um, founder and CEO at GoTranvers. And you can actually catch him on the uh, company site at GoTransverse, G-O-T-R-A-N-S-V-E-R-S-E. They are a monetization billing platform and uh, more importantly, changing the way digital transformation happens. So thanks a lot for being on the show and uh, you know, hello from Austin. Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody. You as well, thank you very much. That was terrific advice, man. That was terrific. Look at the pride. Look at the pride. There's a lot of soul here. I'll give him that. So, Absolutely. Awesome. But, uh, amazing. So, uh, so, who do we have next? Yeah. So, it's again a privilege and honor for us to have Cheryl Sullivan, Chief Marketing Officer and Strategy Officer at Ravionics, with us as our second guest. Cheryl is a proven retail and CPG product management executive with 20 years of experience in driving product strategy, product management, and program management initiatives. Prior to joining Revionics, Cheryl was a director of product strategy for Oracle Retail, driving vision, strategy, roadmap across all category management, assortment, pricing, promotion, and space solutions. Prior to Oracle, Cheryl served as VP of product management for both EMS and Spectrum Marketing, and VP of category management for Enactix and I2 Technologies. You can follow Cheryl on Twitter at C-A-S-W-I-N-D-Y. Welcome, Cheryl, to Disrupting Me. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, Cheryl. Now, you know, you're in a tough space. It's retail. The margins are horrible. People are being hammered. The companies are going bankrupt, right? Everything's being transformed because of Amazon, and people are responding back. So what does it mean for you guys? Like, what are you doing to help retailers fight that digital disruption and even change the playing field? Yeah, I mean, you, you summed it up really well. It is, is, it, it is hostile. It is chaotic. Um, retailers are struggling. They're doing gut, gut 
changes that, that don't necessarily help them, especially their margins. Um, you know, today with the digital disruption, you know, it's not about just brick and mortar anymore. And you add in this, you know, hyper well-connected shopper, you know, the millennial shopper who is, you know, they were, I like to say they were, they were born with a cell phone in one hand and a coupon in the other. So they're very, they're very price sensitive. They, they have, you know, the store in the palm of their hand, they're able to, to check prices. And that's just really turned retail upside down. The same time with the internet, you know, the, the competitor for the retailer is not around the block anymore. It's around the world. In fact, you know, a, a recent study said 56% of shoppers said they would buy from a, from a, from a retailer on the other side of the world if they could get a better price. So price is critical for them. The old pricing strategies don't work anymore. Um, retail is detail, massive, massive amounts of data. So how do you how do you leverage that data to your advantage? So we've been doing this for about 12 years. So we introduced science when science wasn't really the big buzzword that it is today. And so, um, and of course we've made a lot of advancements, but what we're able to do is optimize prices for retailers at any speed they want, whether that's the Amazon model of, you know, multiple times a day, or whether that's, you know, once a week or, 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 or daily. So the frequency is really up to them. But we look at, we look at the shopper behavior, we're able to understand using machine learning language that is also very predictive, so we can predict what's going to happen. We, we're able to, to understand the price sensitivities of that shopper. And at the same time, we're, we're able with the same type of science to determine, you know, if I change my price, what's my competitor gonna do? Um, and so for our customers, this has been dramatic, it's been key to their success. And a lot of retailers are now struggling to try to, you know, come on board, but more importantly, try to figure it out. So, so between the shopper, between the competitive mar market, and those that don't, um, you know, the, originally they started that, let's just match prices because they, they didn't know what else to do. So they, they implemented these price matching policies, which later found out that that was just a, a, you know, a race to the bottom and nothing happened but a margin erosion. Um, they're still trying to struggle with the promotion. So you're seeing, I mean, it's great for the shopper because you're seeing endless promotions everywhere. Um, the downside is we train the shopper to wait. So they, they don't expect, they don't want the regular price. They know I'll sit, I will wait a week, I will wait. We have some that will, I forget the stat, but it's like over a month they'll wait if they can get yep. the product they want for the price that, that they want. So so this is all just really turn the world upside down. But but what we're able to do um, globally, so and it's interesting because internationally, um, resources are even more um, a, uh, aggressive and progressive so so there we have people doing dynamic price optimization similar to the Amazon's but for grocery for online grocery that's terrific yeah you know Ray painted a I think a fairly accurate picture of what uh, the retail industry is going through and you know it's I, always, I continue to see the comparison of if you take the combined market value of the top five uh, you know, brick and mortar retailers, Walmart, CVS, Costco, Target, Best Buy. I think the market cap adds to 410 billion. Today, the market cap of Amazon is at 444 billion. So it's 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 just it's amazing uh, the, the 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 shift into into online. But more importantly, 
it seems like the digital currency in this hyper-connected economy, as you mentioned, is personalization, immediacy, and intelligent uh, engagement. So, you know, what advice do you have to retailers in terms of, and you mentioned, uh, you know, advanced analytics and, and, and perhaps artificial intelligence technologies. What advice do you have for retailers today to, to continue to stay relevant? And as my good friend Ray says, achieve that ability for mass personalization at scale. Yeah, so, so that, that is key, is retailers that are surviving are those that are, are taking initiatives that make them relevant. And you'll see a, see a lot of retailers are changing their store formats. Um, you'll see a lot of discounters coming in. So you've got the Aldi's, you've got Little that's on their way. Um, you've got, you know, the TJ Maxx's of the world and the Marshall's, like their business is booming, you know. And it's because shoppers, it's not about the brand anymore. They're not price they're not brand loyal they're not even product loyal they're price loyal you know so so you're seeing a lot of that, that type of transition happening the other is it's not just about the it's not just about the the sorry that just threw me it's not just about the about the 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 price, but it's also it's also about changing those business processes. So you can't just introduce technology unless you also adjust the business processes to adopt that technology. Makes sense. And, and one of the interesting things you guys are doing, right? I mean, you guys are helping people figure out their pricing elasticity, um, when to do a promotion, when to do markdowns, how to even do space and even assortment. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, there's a lot of science behind that. Um, that's in the big data piece um, where, where people are using this. So how are, how are retailers bringing that data together and then suddenly saying, oh my God, I actually have an answer in this um, that they weren't seeing before. What are you guys doing to make that happen? Because it's like, it looks like it's applied big data. It, it is about big data and it's, it's a lot of data. So it, it is the shopper data, it is we even incorporate weather data. So it's about bringing all this big data together and of course it is about using the cloud technology so, um, you know, similar to, to James, we, are, we're, we were in the cloud when retailers wouldn't even think about putting their pricing up in the cloud. That was their most sacred thing. So it is about bringing that all together. It is about applying science on top of that. It's about being able to also adhere to those business rules. So it's not just let the science run. It's also making sure that, you know, you've got good, better, best relationships. You're making sure if you change the price of one yogurt, is all yogurts got that price. So it's really about leveraging that, but leveraging it in the cloud and being more agile, more nimble. So what kind of results are retailers seeing when they apply you know, your solutions and your capabilities? So they're seeing huge results, and a lot of them, they're not afraid to speak about us publicly. So they, they, they even talk about us in their earnings reports. But they see anywhere to 2 to 4% increase in sales and, and margin, and they see about 3% increase in operating profit. And we've had customers that have seen 8 to 18 times ROI. Um, and I think you know, the analysts would, would also help support those numbers. That's terrific. That I mean, those are real numbers, right? When your margins are two to three percent and your profit, I mean, you're barely making profit. I mean, these are significant growth models for organizations to actually jumpstart growth, which is which is different. Um, when you think about what works, right, for clients, is it because they come in um, thinking about what they have to do in terms of those shifts? Is it because it's an outside piece of pressure? Like, what's driving these? I mean, what's what's driving them to come visit you guys? What's driving them to come visit us is, is their, their margins. 
So in addition to the shopper, in addition to the competitors, you know, their costs are also increasing. So we have some customers that, you know, that are dollar type of stores. And so they, I can't pass those costs off onto my, my shoppers. So, so they're using the tool to be able to understand which products I need to be very, uh, which, which ones shoppers are price sensitive on and that I need to be very competitive. But it looks at the rest of the assortment. And there are other products that shoppers are willing to pay more. And you can actually raise your prices. And so it's really about looking at the entire assortment and, and protecting those margins. So they're coming to us because, one, they're competing against Amazon. Amazon's yep. been doing this for quite some time. Um, you know, we, 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 you know, customers, eBags, right? So, so eBags is doing dynamic pricing because they live in that online world. So in order, they know in order to remain relevant, the price is, price is king. So you're giving them Amazon capabilities so that they can compete against with Amazon, which they normally wouldn't have because they don't want to be anywhere near Amazon at this point. Right, so we do what's called dynamic pricing, but, but the way we talk about that is, is it's really high frequency pricing and, you know, but if you're in a store, you're obviously not gonna wanna be changing prices, you know, interday, but we do have retailers using ESLs, changing those stores, changing all, you know, several products at night. Um, but so it's, it, the capabilities are there, the science is there to, to monitor the, the, the shifts in the market, the, the, the preferences of the shoppers and their price sensitivities levels as they fluctuate. It's collecting real-time competitive data on the competitors. It understands which ones impact their demand and what those thresholds are in order for it to warrant a price change versus just these price matching policies. So it's really up to the retailer you know, how frequently they want to price, but, but the science will tell them when it's necessary to price. And so, so yes, is it the Amazon, but you know, Amazon is also moving into brick and mortar. Amazon is expanding beyond the typical categories. They're now doing fashion. They're now doing groceries, you know, so, so a lot of the grocers are really starting to step up and kind of take notice um, beyond just, you know, do I take 50 price changes today? It's really, What's my omni-channel pricing strategy and how do I balance that? Because guess what? Shoppers are, pricing, their price sensitivity levels are different online than in the store for the exact same item. So, so, so they're struggling. Do I have consistent pricing? Do I not have consistent pricing? You know, what will the shopper think? Well, we just concluded a study that, that, that said 79% of shoppers are realize that you can use science, you can change my prices, just give me the price you want. They also know that they expect prices to be cheaper online. It's no surprise. I think one of the things retailers do is underestimate their shoppers. You know, they just assume, oh, I can't do that because my shoppers will be upset, you know, but it's why this last study we did, we asked the shopper. Um, so, so I think those, the, those retailers realize they have to do something and they're scrambling for, for, for innovation and they're scrambling for science. And so Cheryl, you know, you're responsible for product strategy for Oracle Retail, one of the largest companies in the world. Tell us lessons learned now in your new role. Uh, you know, success stories, maybe lessons learned through iterative, iterative models and, and experimentation now that you're at a company that's, you know, not Oracle. <laughs> yeah, so, so when I went to Revionics, I will, I will say from the Oracle view, Revionics was a blip on the radar. Um, they're now our competitor. And, and they fear us, you know, along with IBM and, and a lot of people. I love them. 
so so we kind of compete against the big guys. So how have we been successful? How how is it that we we don't lose deals? We do it because we we invest a great deal amount of money into our products. Oracle does acquisitions and then they ignore them. Um, so so we invest. We spend a great deal there. The other is I learned, you know, I learned some of what I brought to Rivian is what I learned not to do in the Oracle thing. Oracle was about getting customers. You know, today nothing's guaranteed. So it's really about retaining customers. So so putting the customer first, even as a vendor, I think has been huge to our success. The other is we were able to to recruit and retain incredible people. And so it's, it's a lot about our culture and it's a lot about our partnering um, with our customers. So, you know, we don't necessarily need to go in with the suits. We're just real. We keep it real. We, we handhold them. The reason we have um, customers who have been big ones that have been with us for 10, over 10 years, renew over and over and over again, is, is because we don't we don't sell it and then ignore them. You know, we, we engage, we stay constantly engage. We know that our success is dependent upon their success. So we, we help prove we help them prove the value of the products every day. So it's, it's the people, it's the culture, it's, it's the product. And I think when you get at least what are, you know the bigger companies like that, um, you know you can't just can't use the name. You know, and for for the little guy like us, you know, to go in and, and pretty much grab a lot of those customers in a business model where, you know, they in they were in the cloud, they could walk away, just walk away, and they don't. And and I would say that those are the reasons. And I think what I didn't like in in my former world in that environment drove me to want to have that in a company like Revionics. So so a lot of like-minded people some of the most intelligent people in the industry, um, we've been able to attract great talent. So speaking about talent, I mean, it's, uh, looking at the Glassdoor reviews, I mean, you guys are one of the hardest working firms in Austin. Uh, that's from, from what we're telling. Uh, lots of folks that are very passionate. Tell us about the Austin scene for you guys, right? Um, you guys have been in Austin for quite some time. How's it to recruit? How's it uh, like to retain talent? How's it to attract capital? Yeah, so so I don't personally live there, but I have an office there. I, I'm, I'm actually in Chicago, but but my husband believes I live there because I'm there most of the time. Um, it is a great city, I will say, and the, the talent is an, as amazing, especially when you got the the you know Salesforce and you got IBM and Oracle and Google. You know, so so there's great talent there. You know, you can track talent with money and all that, but it's really about how you keep it. Right, so now that ties back to the culture. It also ties back to you know what we're doing. It's it's an exciting time to be in retail, and more importantly, in in the pricing and promotional pricing and promotional space. So so it, it's a, it's a great environment. Um, we our headquarters was originally in in Sacramento. We've been in Austin. I want to say for close to six years. Um, tracking capital. Like, like I said, we, we are kind of the golden child out there right now. So, so you know, we obviously look great, but, but you know, Goldman, we did a, Goldman invested in us in about, in, I believe, in 2014. We've not really needed to raise capital, so we're, we, we do quite well. Terrific. Cheryl, my last question, I asked the same of Jim. Uh, you know, as the chief strategy and marketing officer, where do you uh, conduct your research in terms of setting the vision for the company? And who are some of the folks that influence your thinking? 
Yeah, so I, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I've been doing vision and all that for so many years. It's not a one and done. You know, it, it's dynamic. It's an ongoing process. It's about making sure you stay on top of the market. Make sure that you are staying on top of your competition. Um, you know, like James, you know, you talk to the analysts, um, but more importantly, you talk to your customers. And so, so really, it's an ongoing research. It's staying connected with the market. Um, you know, I think I think you know some of my influencers have always have have been you know similar to James. You know, there's the family and all those people that that influence you along the way. I have been lucky to have some some former founders and former CEOs that that um, were. I, I have the utmost respect for them, and um, and I remain very good friends with that have helped me along the way. Um, I tend to, you know, I love the Steve Jobs, I love the, you know, the Larry Ellison's, you know, and all that. And so, um, th those have been great influences for me. This has been great. We were talking to Cheryl Sullivan here, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Revionics. Um, they're doing some dynamic pricing and some very interesting startup work here in Austin. And you can follow her at CAS Windy for Chicago. At CAS Windy um, is, is the uh, Twitter handle. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Wow. Terrific advice. Two extraordinary executives. Austin is awesome innovation here. Incredible talent, no question. No it sounds like if you're going to if you're going to Austin, you know, just watch out for the allergies. And uh, I think <laughs> Texans are a little little annoyed at the Californians at the moment. That's what we've gotten so far. <laughs> so no, but definitely great startups, great talent, great things. Shaku, how are you doing? Hey, I'm I'm doing really great. Um, it's awesome. wonderful. So this is our cleanup hitter spot. This is where we bring someone who we know is going to hit a grand slam. And, uh, <laughs> show. So no, no pressure, Shaka. No pressure. No, no, not at all. Uh, okay, bye. <laughs> so our guest is Shaku Selvakumar, Vice President of Marketing at Cognitive Scale a fast-growing company that specializes in delivering industry-specific cognitive computing solutions, a white-hot space. Shaku is a successful marketing communication digital leader with multi-country, multinational, and startup experience, having worked for Fortune 500 companies like IBM, Shell, and Levify Solutions. She's also a columnist for the Financial Chronicle and wrote about social and digital trends in addition to interviewing influencers pursuing work aligned uh, with their passion. Previously, Shaku was customer advocacy leader for social business. Before this, she was the lead social and content strategist uh, for IBM WebSphere. Her ability to understand uh, the macro marketing trends, align them with business priorities, and collaborate with extended ecosystem of stakeholders has won various awards, including Forrester Groundswell, Herms, and SIA. You can follow Shaku on Twitter at S-H-A-K-U-S. Welcome, Shaku, to Disrupt TV. I should have given you a smaller bio. <laughs> I had a very hard time shrinking your bio because you've done so much. <laughs> well, you, you, know, you know how it is with bios. It can just go on and on and on. <laughs> 
No, you've got no, this is awesome. No, no, this is awesome. Hey, you know, tell us about this journey, right? I mean, you guys have created, you guys rode the wave of a category around cognitive computing. Um, the founder of the company was an ex-IBMer um, in the Watson group and then spun this thing out. And now you're talking about augmented machine learning, machine intelligence. This is very, very cool stuff. What's happening here? Talk about this journey from startup to where you guys are today. So. So I'm planning to write a book, but don't tell anyone. It's a cognitive computing. The we'll actual have, we'll Well, um, it, it's very, really interesting. So Matt, Manoj, Akshay, and I, uh, we go back to Webify. And Webify was acquired by IBM in uh, 2006. And, and what happened was um, we all went our separate ways. Um, Matt, uh, you, you you know about the IBM Watson story. Matt was the lab leader. He he leaves in 2013 because he has, you know, these great ideas that he wants to. Uh, and this was just when cognitive computing was getting commercialized. Um, so what? Uh, and he gets in touch with me and he says, Shaka, I need a logo. <laughs> and at that point, I it had, it had been a year since I'd left IBM because I wanted to write my book. I wanted nothing to do with tech. I was, you know, completely um, into this other phase in my life. And that was, I think that was when I interviewed you, Ray, when your book had come out, right? You remember? Yep. Yep, and yep. so um, uh, Manoj, the next, uh, the next year, Manoj leaves um, IBM Watson because he wanted to start this cognitive computing ecosystem around Watson. And uh, he comes in and, and he's one of the investors, the big investor in the, in the fund and the chairman, executive chairman. And Akshay joins soon, soon after. And AI at that point was still Terminator, was still, you know, the evil <laughs> uh, 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 science fiction thing that comes and ruins the world. And at that point, nobody really could figure out what, what uh, outcomes AI or cognitive computing could deliver. And that was in, and we came out of stealth mode in 2014. I remember you and I meeting at IBM Interconnect. We had that discussion with you, Matt, and I. But what? But and to and the the proverbial it hits the roof. Um, I would say the turning point was last year when now every company says that they are an AI company. But the fact of the matter is, this is again, this is hard work. And, and the, the, this is not something that just pops out of the box and you hand it over and you walk away. And, and what, uh, what we are seeing more customers, when we started, customers were what is artificial intelligence. Now they want to understand how can, and now the, the questions are tougher. Now they want to know what, how do you uh, construct this the right way? Because if you look at you know what happened with the internet, when you look at what happened with the, the social channels, innovation without its without uh, the fundamental structure around it to do good, to to be robust, to be reliable, to scale, and can actually start creating problems for companies. So, uh, which is why we're really proud of. Uh, uh, being involved with AI Austin, um, we're one of the founding partners, and AI Austin is an initiative that 
is um, uh, looking at innovation and building it around uh, you know an ethical construct responsibly and 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 not just okay let me let me take this tool here from this startup let me work with the, with this uh, company and then build a hodgepodge um, which is not really going to be able to scale sure sure well you're absolutely right that the, the acceleration from terminator <laughs> understanding <laughs> Today is is incredible. Uh, ethics best world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ethics in AI is one of the fourteen systems that uh, the World Economic Forum is is tracking as a major initiative. I just hosted a CIO event in Toronto, Canada, uh, with a hundred CIOs with peak interest in AI. The government this month um, donated a hundred twenty-five million dollar plus grant for the Vector Institute and in University of Toronto at the center of trying to retain talent in the AI space in Canada. And there's about 1,750 AI startups that in the last two years have fetched 15 billion in funding yeah. Yeah. from VCs. So yeah. you're in a white hot space, no question. Yeah. Can you tell us about what business problem is Cognitive Scale trying to solve and what are some of the outcomes you've achieved so far? Well, we, we, we started, when we started, we, uh, we went into healthcare and if you look at if you and this is again vertical specific enterprise ai is where we play we are not uh, we're not solving everything for anyone going broad with data does not work it, it to uh, and i and i know that vala uh, um, you your recent report what what was that 77% of your it leaders are actually uh, they see business as partners. So this is this is this fundamental shift that we're seeing here with you know with the cloud, with social, mobile, uh, uh, data, blockchain, all the this convergence. What it's doing, what it's done is, it is starting to break down the silos within the organization. And so we, uh, you know, when we talk about business technology. AI, despite its uh, AI, despite the way it sounds, is actually the perfect uh, technology that businesses can understand. And I often joke. I, I say I don't speak geek. I can translate. <laughs> I don't. don't worry, Ray is here to translate for us. <laughs> in fact, in under fact, characters. I, <laughs> I, I kid you not. I I still go back to Ray's uh, CIO grid. Where you know, we're looking at the different kinds of companies, we we actually um, un, you know unlike SOA, which was also one of the emerging technologies a decade ago, with AI we are seeing that the companies that we started with were truly early adopters. They truly yeah. wanted to they wanted to leapfrog and go into into this um, with this technology. And if you look at all the research from some people are calling it, uh, Gartner calls it smart machines, uh, Forrester calls it systems of insights, you know, you've got IDC calling it cognitive computing. And I know, the, Ray, you integrated in uh, with digital transformation, but the fact of it remains that uh, the business is buying into it. So whether we have a conversation with the CM CMIO, um, or the CIO at MD Anderson, or you know, when we're talking to 
uh, I mean, we're not allowed to give out we're talking to CMOs, we're talking to the yeah. chief merchandising officers, the strategy officers, and they are all validating. And, and the CDO in my book is the chief digital officer, it's the chief data officer. So these two roles are also becoming critical in an organization and they are working with the CTOs and the CIOs. So you, your business is as complex as it can be, but now the, the silos, they understand why the silos need to come down because enterprise, uh, in, information within the enterprise and information outside the enterprise is causing this uh, big tsunami of overwhelming data. and and what you don't know is actually paralyzing businesses because they don't even know that they don't, they know they have right. a problem. Right, right. But That's they know right. that they're missing something because there's just so much out there. And, and it's hard not to speak geek in this space because, you know, and I spent uh, f first part of my career as a double E writing complex algorithms and code and and you hear neural networks and deep learning and machine learning, natural language processing, smart data discovery, virtual assistant. This, and it's just like oh. chatbots. <laughs> yeah, 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 chatbots. Of course, how could I, how could I miss chatbots? Uh, uh, and they're all and robots. Yeah, absolutely. And they're all important technologies. And in fact, I don't know. Was it William Gibson who said the future is already here, just not evenly distributed? All of these technologies are powering some of our, our most uh, loved apps that we use in our lives, whether it's Alexa, Siri, this, that, and the other. Amazon, Facebook, all, all these technologies are powered by these cool technologies. So how do, you, how do you make sense of, how can you avoid not speaking geek when you have all these different, uh, different branches within the data science you know, uh, uh, capability spectrum? Well, one of the things that we are doing is, um, I, I don't know whether which of the speakers mentioned it, we are actually we we don't believe in in selling um, selling a tool and then running away. <laughs> you know, the the whole the whole notion of understanding the vertical, understanding the uh, bringing in the data, work you know our uh, industry specific content, the graphs, the pre curated uh, industry, the graphs. This. Uh, and the, and the machine learning algorithms, what we're seeing is this becomes important when we talk about cognitive systems. Cognitive systems are not passive intelligence. It's active intelligence, which means that it's not, uh, you know, every interaction is not, doesn't get over and you don't start all over again at ground zero, right? If you are a patient, you go to a doctor today, your doctor, even if they've known you for the last 20 years, they still look at you and they have to recollect what exactly is wrong with you. And then they do not have any idea of all the other specialists that you've seen. So with MD Anderson, this, this whole cancer journey, is, is, it doesn't start at MD Anderson. It actually starts way, be, way beyond. And um, the CIO of MD Anderson actually calls it from seeking to survivorship because your illness becomes part at some point becomes part of your identity and another and it's you know take for instance the uh, type 1 diabetes the adolescent who goes from uh, managed care he's at home and and suddenly he's, he's now 
graduated and he's going to college, he is going to self-manage care. And right. so prevention and um, care that starts in your own environment rather than at the hospital, these are, there are, um, there is something called augmented intelligence is different from pure AI because a little bit of AI goes a long way. And so you can see this being applied to your, uh, you know, you at the, at the user engagement with patients, with shoppers, with your wealth clients. You can see it uh, being, um, you know, applied at with uh, business processes like uh, claims transformation. You know, what, what a little uh, AI applied to cl at the claims denial process can immediately result in um, reduction of cost for an organization. And, and there's another quote, I, I, it's not mine, but I read somewhere that boring can make you billions. We often want something to be, you know, transformative, big, but incremental. And so what we do is we have something called the 10, 10, 10 methodology where we we don't go come in and say, give us uh, millions of dollars, give us two years of your uh, time, your team, and then maybe you'll see results. We actually say, let's start with a project, with a identify a use case. You know, we deliver it uh, in a hundred days. You see the outcome, and then you start looking at other use cases all through the industry lens. Oh, come on. I love the Palantir model. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't get me into trouble now, Ray. <laughs> I'm not going to get into trouble. All right. Anyways, so, so what's, what's, what's going on in Austin? Like, what, what's, what's hot? What's happening on the tech scene, the culture? And talk a little bit about your last LinkedIn post on, on your four-letter word, duty. Let's hit oh, my goodness. You read about that. So, um, okay. I, I learned from many people, um, Austin, just really quick, this is rapid fire, I have three minutes. Austin's hot, we're cool. Um, <laughs> the other four letter word I think that we all need to embrace is, um, is duty because, you know, we're such an entitled bunch of people. We whine and complain about everything. We have these, everyone wanting to become the CEO. But the fact is, go do your job, do it well, be accountable, be responsible, be reliable, and, uh, and, and you're going to get there. We're all going to get there, you know, and, 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 and I just get annoyed when people are complaining about stuff where, you know, three quarters of the world is suffering. And, and so I have no patience for that. <laughs> Sorry. I love it. I love it. <laughs> did that, did that, was that really bad? No, that was awesome. No, no, the post is awesome. I mean, the, the post is hot. Austin is cool, and stop complaining. Get stuff done. Uh, so, who well, I just I just want to add one more thing. I'm I'm learning from my children, and I think that's what the you know there was a path, learning path which was linear, where you'd say, "Well, I'm your dad. I'm your mom. Listen to me. I know it all." But my daughter you know, shares her Spotify music with me and she is going off to college and she's got me tickets to all J. So I, and, and you know, she gets, she tells me what to do on Snapchat. 
I think the important thing is, even in the workforce, we need to learn from the generations, the cross generations, because there are the baby boomers, there's the Gen X, there's millennials, there's Gen Z coming in. And I think we need to figure out how do we help them not be insecure that they're going to steal our jobs. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if you're truly confident, that should not worry you. You know? Okay. Okay, I might drop. No, no, no. Yeah, that's awesome. You hit a grand slam. You are cool. And you definitely have to come back on Disrupt TV. And you guys come over to Austin anytime. We'll have all the tacos there, you know, you know laid out for you. Uh, another Chalantra visit. We are talking to Shaku Selvakumar, Vice President of Marketing, Cognitive Scale, Twitter at Shaku S. You can catch up with her and catch up all the cool things. And then, of course, follow her exciting chairman who actually does the Austin Grand Prix, among other crazy things uh, that man does. So <laughs> take care. Thanks a lot for having us here. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wow. ATX. This is why it's the fastest hour for, for me on Friday afternoons. Three extraordinary uh, business leaders who are, you know, competing with Silicon Valley and growing businesses and customers in Austin. Pretty awesome, Ray. No, it's pretty cool. And, and in fact, I think like we're going to be doing um, other segments. Uh, so, you know, we'll probably hit up Tel Aviv. We'll do Silicon Beach, Silicon Slopes. LA and Utah and Salt Lake City, for those who don't know where. Uh, we've got to hit Bangalore, definitely hot startups there. Germany, Singapore, Germany, definitely. We're doing that. I mean, so, so yeah, so if you've got a great startup, definitely let us know. Uh, we are going to be doing some regional series. I'm sure we missed at least 20 other startups here in Austin. Um, but yeah. So what, what's going on next week? We've got some very interesting folks next week here. We do, we do. We have Nicole Raimundo, CIO of Town of Cary, and she's going to talk about not just their mobile 311, not their cloud mobile social AI, IoT initiatives, one of the brightest CIOs in, uh, in the government space. G2 Patel, Chief Strategy Officer, head of platform at Box, another unicorn uh, and now a successful you know, uh, digital native uh, disruptor uh, company. And then uh, we're bringing, uh, you know, Esteban Polsky, principal founder of ThinkJar. Esteban grounds he's Ray disruptive. and I. He's just yeah, disruptive. He, <laughs> yeah, he's just there to disrupt Ray and I. So, <laughs> so we want to know what to expect. One of the brightest uh, analysts covering enterprise software. And uh, so it's going to be a jam-packed show next week. Join us for episode 60, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, Disrupt TV. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you there.